Good evening. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Nawaz. On the news hour tonight, a celebration turned deadly. Kansas City reels after a shooting at its Super Bowl parade. A New York judge denies former President Donald Trump's request to delay a criminal case that stems from alleged hush money payments. And shelling and airstrikes between Israel and Hezbollah escalate, endangering civilians living near the border with Lebanon. It's very hard to, to survive this. You don't have uh, another uh, place to go. Welcome to the News Hour. Kansas City is coping tonight with the aftermath of the Super Bowl parade shooting that left one person dead and 22 others injured. Half of them were under the age of 16. It was at least the 48th mass shooting in the U.S. already this year, and it left local officials asking themselves what more they could do to protect the public when there was already a heavy police presence at the event. It was a morning that began with revelry. Nearly one million elated fans of the Kansas City Chiefs lining the streets on Wednesday as players atop a double-decker motorcade rode out the high of their historic Super Bowl win. Kansas City, let me hear you one time! The victory lap culminated outside Union Station, where massive crowds gathered for one last rally with their home team. Just minutes after it ended, the area still packed with people, the celebrations turned deadly. Pops of gunfire sent the crowd into a panic. Fans suddenly found themselves scrambling to find cover. Well, the only thing I really saw was that it became chaotic. And um, I hear down, 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 everybody down. And at about the same time, all of a sudden, I see the SWAT teams jumping over the fence, and I'm like, okay, this might be real. This is supposed to be a celebration for everybody in the city and those of the surrounding area. Just devastating. The shooting claimed the life of 43-year-old Lisa Lopez-Galvin, a popular community radio DJ. She co-hosted Taste of Tejano, a weekly show that brings traditional Mexican music to the radio waves of Kansas City. One of her children, Mark, was reportedly shot in the leg. In total, 22 people were injured by gunshot wounds. Investigations are still unfolding, but authorities have ruled out terrorism. There was no nexus to terrorism or homegrown violent extremism. This appeared to be a dispute between several people that ended in gunfire. Police say they detained three people, two of them minors, and recovered several firearms from the scene. We tackled them. We tackled them. But not without the help of some brave Chiefs fans like Paul Contreras. Cell phone video caught the moment he and several others tackled and held down a man who was running from police. I never think about it. I just a reaction. I didn't hesitate. It was just, just do it. And as I'm tackling him, I see his weapon either fall out of his hand or out of his sleeve because he was wearing a long jacket or like a Carhartt. So when I seen that hit the ground, I'm like, oh, you know, we got to take this guy down. City officials say the shooting happened despite the presence of 800 members of law enforcement, turning lethal in seconds. Today, Mayor Quentin Lucas said he has no plans to cancel any large-scale events, including an upcoming St. Patrick's Day parade. I do think that there is a gun violence challenge in this community and many others, and there certainly is a gun violence challenge as it relates to major events. That, however, does not mean that Kansas City will stop having major events. We will do all we can to make sure people are safe. For now, a community is still reeling from yet another high-profile event marred by gun violence. In the day's other headlines, Israeli forces raided the main hospital in southern Gaza a day after ordering thousands of refugees to leave the complex. The target was Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis. The Israelis said they had credible intelligence that they might find the remains of dead hostages. Because Hamas terrorists are likely hiding behind injured civilians inside Nasser Hospital right now, and appear to have used the hospital to hide our hostages there too. The IDF is conducting a precise and limited operation inside Nasser Hospital. 
The raid followed overnight shelling that left one hospital ward in chaos. One of the surgeons said one patient had been killed in the strike. Houthi fighters in Yemen fired on another British freighter today in the Gulf of Aden. A British security firm says the bulk carrier suffered minor damage. Yesterday, the U.S. military staged four strikes on Houthi sites inside Yemen. The group is aligned with Iran and says it's retaliating for Israel's offensive in Gaza. In the war in Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine traded missile fire, adding to the civilian death toll. The Russians struck Kharkiv in the east, Zaporizhia in the south, Kiev in the north, and Lviv in the west, and killed at least five people. And Moscow reported a Ukrainian missile hit a shopping center and a school stadium in Belgorod in western Russia. At least six people died there. The White House has confirmed that Russia is developing a space-based anti-satellite weapon. That comes after Republican Mike Turner, House Intelligence Committee chair, had warned of what he called a serious national security threat. Today, John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, said the intelligence is still classified, but he did give some details. I can confirm that it is related to an anti-satellite capability that Russia is developing. This is not an active capability that's been deployed. And though Russia's pursuit of this particular capability is troubling, there is no immediate threat to anyone's safety. Kremlin officials dismissed the reports as a malicious fabrication designed to get Congress to approve more aid for Ukraine. Lawyers made closing arguments today in New York on whether officials from the National Rifle Association engaged in years of lavish spending. Former CEO Wayne LaPierre and three other NRA executives are accused of misspending millions of dollars on luxury trips, expensive gifts and meals. The state filed the charges as part of a civil lawsuit. In Greece today, lawmakers legalized same-sex civil marriage, the first Orthodox Christian country to take that step. The center-right prime minister wrote the bill and addressed parliament before the vote, followed by lawmakers who opposed it. In the it is something that our Constitution provides for. It is something that our system of government requires. People who have been invisible will finally be made visible. In the name of human dignity, in the name of respecting the sacred institution of marriage and the Greek Orthodox traditions, and in the name of protecting defenseless children, vote against this disgraceful bill. The legislation also grants parental rights to same-sex couples with children. A new effort is underway tonight to put the first privately owned lunar lander on the moon. Intuitive Machines of Houston launched its Odysseus spacecraft early today. That was on a SpaceX rocket that blasted off from Cape Canaveral. It's expected to attempt a moon landing next Thursday. In economic news, Japan has now officially fallen into recession. That's after new data showed the country's economy contracted for a second straight quarter. And on Wall Street, stocks moved higher as interest rates eased on the bond market. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 348 points to close at 38,773. The Nasdaq rose 47 points. The S&P 500 added 29. Still to come on the news hour, the push for diversity at colleges and companies comes under siege. The state of Arizona becomes a model for mental health hotlines. And a new film documents how some of the greatest pop stars came together for one night in 1985 to make history. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. A judge in New York City today ruled that Donald Trump will go on trial next month to face felony charges that he falsified business records to cover up a sex scandal in order to protect his presidential campaign. The judge rejected Trump's motion to dismiss or delay the case and told lawyers to prepare for trial starting March 25th. The former president attended the hearing today and again criticized the case against him as politically motivated. They want to keep me nice and busy so I can't campaign so hard. But maybe we won't have to campaign so hard because the other side is incompetent. Our William Brangham was in the courtroom this morning and he joins me now. So, William, of all the current cases against the former president, this was the oldest. It's now the first to go to trial. But just remind us, what are the charges that former President Trump is facing here? 
Um, let's go back in time, back to 2016. The presidential campaign is nearing the end, Trump versus Hillary Clinton. The Access Hollywood tape has just come out. And right around that time, Trump's fixer, Michael Cohen, pays Stormy Daniels, a woman named Stephanie Clifford, she's a pornographic film actress, $130,000 to stop her from going public with her story about having a sexual relationship with the married candidate, Donald Trump. Michael Cohen says that Donald Trump directed him to make that payment. The election happens, Trump is elected and he's, he's in the White House. And then Trump reimburses Michael Cohen that $130,000. And it is at that point that the Manhattan District Attorney, Melvin Bragg, argues that, that Donald Trump had committed fraud because he's arguing that he falsified business records to cover up that payment for why he why he gave that payment in the first place, why he was reimbursing Michael Cohen, and why Michael Cohen was paying Stormy Daniels in the first place. So he's charged Trump, Alvin Bragg has charged him with 34 counts of falsifying records. And he's basically arguing that Trump was trying to hide this fact from voters. And thus was this is an election-related crime. Um, he says that these falsified these records and that that's what's going to be in this case that will be starting soon. The legal analysts I've spoken to note that these are relatively low-level felony charges that the former president is facing. And so even if he were convicted of all of them, most of them believe it is very unlikely that the former president would be facing any prison time. So, William, this case in New York was always expected to take a back seat to a federal case down here in Washington on election interference. So how did this end up going to trial first? And, and what does that mean for the case? Right. The D.C. January 6th election case being brought by special counsel Jack Smith, that was always supposed to go first. It was actually going to originally scheduled to start in three weeks on March 4th. But former President Trump claimed presidential immunity, and he appealed this. The judge overseeing the D.C. case rejected that. A D.C. Uh, appeals court rejected that. But that appeal is now before the Supreme Court of the United States. And so in that delay is how this case has now reinserted itself into the schedule. In fact, today, um, Judge Marchand, who is overseeing the Stormy Daniels case, noted that he had been in touch with Judge Chutkin, who's overseeing the D.C. case, to talk about the scheduling. And so he argues that he can now get this hush money case in, in New York started and completed before the D.C. case would ever begin. Now, some of the D.C. cases resting on what the Supreme Court does. If they pick it up, then the D.C. case could be delayed for months. We just don't really know. As you played the clip from Trump at the beginning, Trump's lawyers all along were arguing today that it is fundamentally unfair to put Donald Trump on trial for this case right in the middle of the election. They said he should be out campaigning in states all over the country, not sitting in a courthouse. But Judge Marchand said, no, justice is not going to wait. And the trial starts March 25th. William, I need to ask you about another case. That's the election interference case in Georgia. So the district attorney there, Fonnie Willis, uh, who's overseeing that case, uh, is now facing allegations of having an improper relationship with one of her lead attorneys. There was a rather contentious hearing on that today. What can you tell us about what happened? Uh, I think contentious is the is the gentlest way to refer to that hearing today. As you said, the Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is facing these allegations that were brought up by one of the 19 defendants in her huge racketeering election interference case in Georgia. One of those defendants said, you are having an inappropriate relationship with the lead prosecutor that you selected to run this case, and that with his salary, he is taking you, Fonnie Willis, on expensive vacations all over the world and all over the country, and that that's a clear conflict of interest and you should be disqualified from the case. So today, the judge overseeing this, Judge McAfee, held a hearing to try to get to the bottom of this. And Willis and the lead prosecutor who she was having a relationship with, a man named Nathan Wade, they both admitted, as they had in previous filings, that they did have a relationship, a romantic relationship, but... They both reasserted that that relationship did not start until after 
Wade had been hired. And so the idea that she was intentionally hiring a boyfriend to then reap the benefits of it, they rejected that argument. There was one witness, a former colleague of Fonnie Willis's, who testified today that she believed the relationship had started many years before, before Wade was hired. Fonnie Willis, in later testimony, said that was a former colleague who had been asked to resign because of poor performance, basically implying that she was a disgruntled former employee. So I want to play just one clip from today. It was really incredible amount of back and forth conflict with the lawyers, conflict with the judge, Fonnie Willis herself on the witness stand being really pushing back on this. Let's play this one clip to get us to get a taste of what this was like today. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. So more testimony will occur tomorrow. Judge McAfee will decide in the end whether or not Fonnie Willis has to be removed from this case. All right. That is William Brangham joining us from New York tonight. William, thank you so much. You're welcome, Omno. The special counsel in the Hunter Biden investigation has charged a one-time informant with lying about President Biden and his son. Alexander Smirnov is accused of falsely claiming that the Ukrainian energy firm Burisma paid the Bidens $5 million apiece back in 2015 and 2016. Laura Barone-Lopez is here to explain the charges and how they undercut a key part of the House Republican impeachment inquiry into President Biden. So, Laura, what is the DOJ alleging? So the Justice Department, uh, Special Counsel David Weiss, uh, has charged Alexander Smirnov with two counts, essentially alleging that he has made false statements to a government agent. That's count one. Count two, a falsification of records in a federal investigation. And in this indictment, the DOJ is saying that the defendant's story to the FBI, this is in the document itself, the defendant's story to the FBI was a fabrication, an amalgam of otherwise unremarkable business meetings and contacts that had actually occurred, but at a later date than he claimed, and for the purpose of pitching Burisma on the defendant's services and products, not for the discussing bribes to public official one when he was in office talking about uh, President Biden there, but essentially all of the stories, everything that he had detailed to the FBI was a fabrication. And these allegations had become a flashpoint in large part because you had people like the House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, other House Republicans, saying that these allegations flat out proved that President Biden was guilty of bribery. So what does all of this now mean for that House impeachment inquiry against President Biden? That's exactly right, Jeff. Oversight Chairman James Comer, in addition, in addition to Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican, as well as Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, repeatedly were trying to get a hold of this information that the FBI had from Smirnoff, uh, the allegations that he was making. Just last summer, Comer was calling this informant, Alexander Smirnoff, a trusted and highly credible informant who had been used by the FBI for decades. So this was a key uh, central basis of the Republicans, the House Republicans' uh, entire impeachment inquiry into President Biden. What they said was the justification for launching that impeachment inquiry. And, you know, their response to this indictment is that they said that they were essentially misled by the FBI, that the FBI had had this source for years and that they were simply just getting their information from this document uh, that the FBI had. And the FBI, as I understand it, is now using memos that congressional Republicans released as part of their indictment against Alexander Smirnov. So what do you see as the other potential political fallout here? Look, Democrats are seizing on this, essentially saying that uh, the entire basis for the House Republican impeachment inquiry into President Biden is on shaky ground. They have no evidence whatsoever because one of their biggest pieces that they said was of evidence of a bribery scheme uh, is now uh, being called into severe question by the Justice Department, saying that it was all a lie. Now, this also comes, Jeff, after witness after witness, including some of Hunter Biden's business associates, have testified, you know, uh, have been deposed by uh, the Oversight Committee and by the committee overseeing this, and have essentially said that there is no evidence that President Biden was involved in any of Hunter Biden's business dealings. And this also comes, Jeff, a few weeks before Hunter Biden is set to testify to the committee. Laura Barone-Lopez, thanks so much for getting up to speed on all this late-breaking news. Thank you.
As the war in Gaza rages, tensions are escalating on Israel's northern border. Israel and Le Lebanese Hezbollah, the Iran-backed group there that the U.S. labels as terrorists, have traded fire since the October 7th terrorist attack. Nick Schifrin speaks to Israelis who live near the border about the threat, their forced displacement, and how their government has responded. For more than a century, Tal Levitt's family has called this valley home. Matula is Israel's northernmost town, where Levitt runs a farm 500 feet from Lebanon, 500 feet from Hezbollah militants on the other side of his apple orchard, too close for comfort. Uh, we're neighbors, and uh, they see us uh, all the time, what we do, where we go, what we make. And since October the 7th, they've been seen and striking. On October 14th, a rocket hit his orchard. And last week, in response to an Israeli attack in Lebanon, Tal himself was the target. This is the aftermath. His kitchen ceiling collapsed. It was a direct hit straight through his roof. They saw me go inside to my home, and uh, I go out. After uh, two hours, they uh, throw a rocket to my home. They think, they, uh, they think I'm uh, inside, but uh, when I go, they not see that. Matula is in the Lower Galilee, about 30 miles north of the Sea of Biblical Renown, and is the only Israeli city surrounded by an international border on three sides. It's been around for more than 120 years. The Levitts are one of 20 founding families. That's his great-grandmother in Matula in the 1890s. Tal Levitt is a sixth-generation farmer. That's him in the middle when he was four years old. But now he has to start from scratch. My home is uh, crashed and, uh, you know, I need to make a new home to build uh, everything uh, new. For more than four months, Israel and Hezbollah have traded fire. Israeli airstrikes into Lebanon have killed hundreds of Hezbollah fighters and dozens of civilians. The deadliest strike was yesterday. It killed 10 and blew out this apartment complex. Israel said it killed a Hezbollah commander. Hezbollah has fired hundreds of rockets into Israel. Many are intercepted by Israeli air defense, but others have killed nine Israeli soldiers and six civilians. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah promises more attacks until the war in Gaza stops. Hezbollah can, with precision, thanks to Iranian technology. Israel says Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets and missiles that can reach 95% of Israel, including its largest city, Tel Aviv. The U.S. believes neither side wants war, but the risk is high. Today, Israel's defense ministry released video of what it called an exercise for a Lebanon war. We have no interest in war, but we must prepare. The planes that are flying in Lebanon's sky as we speak have targets. We can do copy-paste from Gaza to Beirut. Metula is now a military camp. The chief of the army visited yesterday. The military has evacuated some 80,000 residents across the north, including Levitt's family. His wife and four children have lived in a hotel for nearly four months. My family, my kids, it's, uh, it's very hard to to survive this. But uh, I tell them, we don't have, uh, not, you don't have uh, another uh, place to go. We don't go to USA now or Europe or something. We have Israel. The government don't do the things that they should do to our citizens and to our residents. Moshe Davidovitz is the mayor of the northern community of Monte Asher and leads a council for northern Israel residents. He says trust between the government and those residents has been broken. The government supposed to give the residents security. And this contract between the government and the citizens is not exist. France and the U.S. are trying through diplomacy to push Hezbollah back at least six miles from the border. But U.S. officials doubt whether that can succeed with cross-border firing, firing that continues even today during our interviews. Now, now there is a missiles uh, shutting. I had it just in, in this minute. Now, we're supposed to get to the shelters. There's missiles fire, being fired now. Just now, yeah. So I want to thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
and so the danger to the people and of wider war is inescapable. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Nick Schifrin. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Life sustains itself by cell division. So does cancer. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if we could block those proteins and stop runaway cell division? To that end, Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs designed to treat many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. The debate in colleges and universities over diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, or DEI, has been heating up around the country. And the backlash, politically and socially, to previous programs has been growing. As part of our ongoing Race Matters series, John Yang unpacks the debate and examines the stakes in higher education. Amna, Utah's Spencer Cox is the latest governor to sign a new law banning any state funding for programs dedicated to promoting diversity, including at state colleges and universities. Utah joins five other states, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, North Dakota, and Tennessee. They all have laws on the books restricting or banning DEI. Lawmakers in 25 states have introduced more than 70 bills targeting DEI efforts at public institutions. The issue was flared up in the wake of the October 7th attacks in Israel and the war against Hamas. It sparked debates over tolerance, inclusion, and academic freedom. Sean Harper is the executive director of the Race and Equity Center at the University of Southern California. And Greg Lukianoff is CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which is a free speech organization. Sean, I'd like to start with you. What, what, what is lost uh, when these offices are closed? Sure. Uh, well, first off, thanks for having us. An institution loses its fidelity to its mission. There are nearly 5,000 colleges and universities across the United States. Most of them include uh, some language in their missions about preparing students for citizenship in a diverse democracy and other commitments to offering and ensuring an inclusive learning environment for all students. That is lost as institutions walk back their commitments to DEI. Uh, what's also lost is our ultimate um, contribution to the defense of our democracy. It is dangerous to send millions of college-educated people into the world and into our professions underprepared to deal with the inequities that have long disadvantaged our democracy. Greg, from your point of view, why should the offices go away? Uh, because they're threats to free speech and academic freedom on campus and have been consistently for as long as they've been called DEI uh, uh, offices. But before that, the, the biggest threat we've seen to free speech and academic freedom on campus are administrators themselves. But we've had particular issues with DEI administrators, including at Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Syracuse, UMass, Boston, University, uh, UCLA, University of Toledo. We had a case at University of Michigan, where a professor was investigated by the DEI department for showing the old Othello from the 1960s with Lawrence Olivier in blackface. Our research indicates that the greater the relative size of DEI bureaucracy at a university, the more discomfort students feel expressing their views on social media and in informal conversations with each other. Um, and this is one of the things that has been missing with mainstream uh, coverage of this situation. Sean, what about that threat to academic freedom? Uh, it creates a big bureaucracy. What do, what do you say to that? Yeah, you know, I am a tenured professor who very much enjoys his academic freedom. So let me not be a hypocrite on this point. Um, I think uh, what is lost and misunderstood in these broad brushes with which DEI uh, gets mispainted um, is that, you know, these occasional uh, sort of one-offs um, are examples of what's happening in every academic department, in every office, on every campus. That's just not the case, right? I have studied literally millions of college students, literally millions on hundreds of campuses. And I have to tell you that students of color, most especially, are not feeling like um, colleges are as, as, as liberal and, 
as welcoming and inclusive as uh, as the DEI obstructionists are, are claiming them to be. Uh, the evidence is the exact opposite, as a matter of fact. There isn't enough emphasis placed on DEI. People who lead those offices often don't have the budgets and the staffing that they need to help the institution make good on the commitments that it has made uh, to, to ensure diversity, equity, and inclusion. Greg, are you a diversity obstructionist? <laughs> diversity of directors. I, I feel like a lot of what I learned from the way we argue in academia today is you just come up with like greater and greater insult technology as if it's an argument. So at UCLA, for example, in 2020, um, we, after a student complained about a professor reading MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail, which does include racial slurs, UCLA referred him to the DEI office. And, and so this is, this is not an occasional thing. And by the way, 2020 and 2021 were the two worst years we've seen for professor cancellations in our history um, at, at FIRE. And as best we can tell, we haven't seen anything like it since the law was established way back in 1973. So we have actually been in a academic freedom crisis. And, and lately, it's actually been very much um, uh, directed at pro-Palestinian voices, which we've been very busy defending. But I do think that ultimately, um, you know, it's not just that DEI uh, and, and the administrative bloat at universities are costing students more. They are actually in many cases, undermining one of the fundamental functions of a university. Sean, I, I don't want to put words into Greg's mouth, but I've heard others argue against DEI, uh, saying that colleges and universities are essentially indoctrinating students uh, in sort of left-wing views. What do you say to that? Yeah, listen, I'm a past president of the American Educational Research Association. I value research and evidence, not anecdotes. And I have to say again that the research makes painstakingly clear that students of color and white students alike, the overwhelming majority of them, do not feel like they're being indoctrinated. In fact, many of them tell us in our surveys and certainly in our qualitative research that they don't learn enough about race and racism, about other dimensions of, of DEI. The other thing that I'll say about, you know, those who recklessly claim that there's just all of this indoctrination, um, I wonder, when was the last time they sat in more than one DEI program? How many programs have they actually sat in and been a part of? Uh, who were the presenters? Were those presenters indeed indoctrinating people and insulting them and dividing them? Is that a thing that happens in every DEI workshop? Does it happen in most DEI workshops? I can tell you declaratively in the ones that we do here at the USC Race and Equity Center across K-12 schools, higher ed institutions, and corporations, that's not what we do here. And that's not how professionals experience uh, what we deliver. Greg, these, these efforts against uh, state DEI uh, programs at state and public schools particularly, are often described or framed as uh, conservative political activism. Is that fair or accurate? I think I think that's uh, I think that's relatively fair, and we have opposed, um, for example, the Stop Woke Act in Florida, uh, which we thought was laughably unconstitutional because it actually went beyond. Because a lot of these uh, attempts to get rid of DI administrators are constitutional because administrators don't have special academic freedom uh, uh, protections, but some of these laws restrict the rights of, of, of free speech rights of students and the uh, curricular rights of, of professors. So the Stop Woke Act in Florida was a great example of something that was unconstitutional. We challenged it in court. We defeated it so far, and it's currently on appeal. But there have been several uh, attempts that have actually badly implicated academic freedom. And every time those come up, we fight them in court. Sean, if, the, if, the, if DEI offices do such gr good work and so uh, are so desirable, why these laws are passing uh, why this sort of backlash against DEI? Well, they are part of an actual politicized movement that is succeeding. There is a playbook that is being passed from state to state and, you know, to cities and towns within states. Um, so there's a strategy that is absolutely succeeding. And that strategy is largely fueled by misinformation and disinformation about what's happening on campuses based on anecdotes, based on rumors, not based on robust 
uh, samples of thousands and millions of students and higher ed workers. Greg, I started with Sean. I'm going to let you have the last word. You reacted quite a bit there uh, to what yeah, Sean was we have, saying. We, 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 we have the, the research indicating the strength of, of, of DEI programming is actually very weak. The research indicating that there's been a major threat to academic freedom and freedom of speech over the past uh, several years is extremely strong. Um, in terms of the number of professors we've seen lose their jobs, and to be clear, threats come from both the right and the left. But we're talking about, you know, about 200 professors fired uh, in, in, since uh, you saw the escalation of professors getting fired around 2014, 2017. And that's twice as many professors who were fired under the standard estimates of McCarthyism. And what's different is the law is supposed to protect them now. So I really want people to take the situation for academic freedom and free speech on campus more seriously. And there's no way to protect it with as massive bureaucracies that we currently have in higher ed today. Gentlemen, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. Greg Lukianoff and uh, Sean Harper, thank you both very much for a spirited discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Since the launch of 988, that's the three-digit dialing code for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, millions of people have made contact with crisis counselors. Call volume has jumped 40% compared to when the hotline was a 1-800 number. But the supports and services available after someone calls 988 largely depend on the state where one lives. Stephanie Sai reports on how Arizona's crisis response network has become a leading model for crisis care. It's been awful hard. Music is how Raquel Medina makes sense of the world. I think but around six months ago, the music stopped playing. Her obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety overcame her. I had been going through several nights where my emotions just became so big. Definitely thoughts of suicide for sure. Um, thoughts of I'd be better if I wasn't around. Even in a state of crisis, three numbers came to her, 988. Once you texted that initial message, what happened then? How long did it take for someone to respond? It was really fast. It was pretty much instant. She had stayed up with me for a couple hours in the middle of the night, just talking with me, texting. We went back and forth, and I kind of explained everything, and she was um, just really supportive, really understanding. The National 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline has received more than 8 million individual calls, texts, and chats since it came online a year and a half ago. That's a lot of people, and it just gives you some insight into the demand out there and the need for it. Bob Gebbia, the CEO of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, says with the number of suicide deaths increasing 3 percent between 2021 to 2022, the timing couldn't have been better. 988 Lifeline, this is Nicole. One of the largest crisis call centers in the U.S. by volume is in Phoenix, Arizona, and is run by a nonprofit contracted by the state called Solari. In just the past few months, Solari has experienced an increase of over 1,000 new monthly 988 calls. It's a 24-hour line, and we experience callers of all shapes and sizes at all hours of the day. Nicole Harris is one of Solari's clinical supervisors. I definitely have found a passion for working with the most underserved, those who have fallen through the cracks, those who are kind of at their end of their rope and don't have anywhere else to turn. It's really sort of striking just to see that constantly there are people in crisis. All of these calls represent a variety of different situations. Harris's goal is to stabilize the patient over the phone, and that is what happens in just under 80 percent of cases. But when the person needs more help, Solari can connect them to the next level of care. That happens at the dispatch center. Like they need an in-person team to come out and speak with them. I'm one of the members that will send one of the mobile team out. Arizona is one of 20 states that offer 24-7 mobile crisis teams. So he's an adult. He's an adult. Yeah. These crisis responders go out on several calls a day throughout sprawling Maricopa County. In this case, a mother whose son has a history of serious mental illness acting aggressively toward her. He's left the scene when they arrive, so they counsel the mom on what to do. 
With many states lacking mobile crisis teams, tragic outcomes have resulted from police intervention in psychiatric emergencies, says Bob Gebbia. If you look across the country in terms of less reliance on law enforcement, which is really not trained for in many cases, and also a drain on their resources, which seem to go elsewhere, but to have more mobile crisis, trained mental health counselors, people who can go out, maybe in tandem with law enforcement, which is another model, but to have that universally available, it's not there. The next step in the continuum of crisis care in Arizona is a crisis stabilization unit like this one, meant to be a safe place for people in severe psychiatric distress. Teresa Costales is the Arizona Medical Director at Connections Health Solutions. It's a very unique system. It does not exist in other places. Uh, it's built out to treat uh, severely mentally ill individuals in the community setting. A flurry of activity occurs in this open office where physicians, nurses and behavioral health specialists consult with social service workers and peer specialists. Even though some patients have been brought by police, there's no law enforcement presence once they're here. They're in handcuffs, we take those handcuffs off. Why um, is that important? Well, it's important because we need to signify that you're coming into a place for treatment. We are not the police, this is not jail. You know, there, there's somebody who's coming in who is feeling increasingly suicidal and maybe they're just very, very depressed and having these strong suicidal thoughts and urges, maybe just attempted suicide. And a lot of those patients are coming in and they're not combative. They're, they're sick right now and they need help. Crisis stabilization centers can keep patients in their observation units for 23 hours, during which most are stabilized. The hotline, mobile crisis teams, and the stabilization units are a continuum of crisis care that Andrew Medina, the state's Medicaid crisis administrator, says are exemplary. Those three components, operational 24-7, 365 days a year, 366 in leap years, is really what sets Arizona apart because nationally there are many, many states where those are operational between 8 to 4, not on weekends, you know, are manned by volunteer services, but here in Arizona, for well over 30 years, we've created a system that's available to any Arizonan whenever they need the help. But the system isn't perfect. 17-year-old Calvin Carbello spent a day in the crisis network that he'd rather forget. It was um, the start of spring break my sophomore year. COVID, definitely, and then I guess it just took me a while to realize that it actually happened, and then family stuff, and then other stuff and it's just a lot at once and you kind of shut down. It was prior to 988 and his mom Kelly had a hard time finding the state crisis number. When it came time to call for him, I froze. I think 988 would have been a much better option. Once she did locate the number, a mobile crisis unit was dispatched. A mobile crisis team comes out and you're glad to see them and they're, they're stabilizing you, but why did they decide to transport you? I was worried about taking my life and all that, and it was just, I was like, I think I should probably go for my own sake. You end up at a state, what are called stabilization, crisis stabilization centers, right? And what do you expect to happen there? To be treated like a person, I guess, not like a number. I got dropped off in this small little room with a bunch of other kids asleep in chairs. I was up all night, maybe slept for two hours, and then just waking up to kids screaming about whatever in the middle of the night, it was bad. Calvin was treated at an urgent psychiatric care clinic in Phoenix that accepts minors. Mom Kelly says there was little treatment involved and that Calvin says he was grouped in with neglected kids who had been dropped off by police. Once they drop them off, they're, they're done, they've been placed. Right. The whole reason for the stabilization unit is because they have nowhere for these kids to go. There's no homes, there's no room at the hospital. So it's, it's not meant to be therapeutic, and it really should be, these are kids. Calvin has since gotten therapy and is looking forward to graduating from high school this year. The access point is crisis. Andrew Medina acknowledges there are still areas for improvement. We recognize that every opportunity that we can do better by you know, our communities, we are working towards that. For Raquel Medina, the system seems to have worked. 
What would you have done had you not had 988? I don't know. I would have spent the night in tears, um, not knowing what to do, still in that dark hole. So I, I honestly have no idea what I would have done to get myself out of it. The crisis care specialist she spoke to that night followed up later on and connected her to a list of therapists that take her insurance. My mental health is probably the best that it's ever been since I, before I was 14 years old. She's been working lately in a job that feels right too, helping others battling mental health challenges as a music therapist. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Stephanie Sai in Maricopa County, Arizona. In 1985, the biggest American pop stars all gathered in one Los Angeles studio for one night only to record one song that raised tens of millions of dollars in humanitarian aid for Africa. One, two. We are the world. We are the children. The story of how the legendary charity single, We Are the World, came to be, including some never-before-seen footage of the recording session itself, is the subject of a new documentary called The Greatest Night in Pop. The documentary is streaming on Netflix now, and I recently spoke with its director, Bao Wynn, for our arts and culture series, Canvas. Bao, welcome back to the News Hour. Thanks so much for joining us. Great. It's, uh, it's great to be back here, Anna. So what made you want to tell this story in the first place? Um, I mean, it, it's, it, it happened in a weird way. I was only two years old when the song came out, and um, it was a song that I didn't understand the global resonance of the song, obviously, when I was two years old. But my parents, who are Vietnamese refugees, they spoke very little English when they came over. But for some reason, they had Lionel Richie records, they had Kenny Rogers records. So I remember the song always playing in the background of my house. And in a way, it was a bridge to, to my American side and my parents' sort of immigrant side. And um, so, yeah, again, the, the song had a lot of resonance. Um, but, you know, the film was conceived during the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, I was watching a lot of things from the 80s and the 90s. So I wanted to make something that was kind of familiar to people. I, we didn't know what we were going to come out of after the pandemic. And so creating a, a film that was really rooted in something that was kind of like a warm blanket um, was important to me. So um, my producer, Julia Nottingham, approached me with this idea of the story of Real World, and I just found the story itself to be really fascinating. The inspiration for the song itself, how that came to be, that isn't really well known. You tell this story in the film, but who first had the idea to record the song, and, and how did that idea come up? So it started with Harry Belafonte, who, you know, had seen what um, the British artists had done with uh, Band-Aid and also was watching a lot of these documentaries about what was going on um, famine in Africa at the time. And I think, you know, we're kind of used to those images, sadly, nowadays. But in the 80s, when it happened, um, it was a shock to everyone who saw those images. And Harry Belafonte, you know, he, he says it in the film that he was sort of like seeing white artists saving um, people in Africa, but he wasn't seeing black artists save um, the people in Africa. And so he started to assemble this team of, you know, Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, uh, through uh, Lionel's manager, Ken Cragen, and that's how it all got started. And this recording includes, it's fair to say, the biggest names in music of the time. Michael Jackson, as you mentioned, Stevie Wonder, Bob Dylan, Tina Turner. It is incredible to see in your film all of these superstars in this studio with no handlers and no press people. They're just hanging out alone with each other. There's one moment, actually, that reveals some of those artists were actually starstruck themselves. Take a listen. Diana walks up to Daryl Hall with her music in her hands and says, Daryl, I'm your biggest fan. Would you sign my music for me? And we all looked around and said, holy moly. Bao, in reviewing all of this behind the scenes footage, what stood out to you about seeing all these superstars in this environment? Yeah, well, as you said, these are the icons of icons of not just that generation, but the generation before and the generation after in many ways. And to see them 
really nervous around each other, excited and sort of fanboying and fangirling around each other, but also really vulnerable. Um, again, these are the greatest musical minds and artists of, of the time. And to see them just sort of not performing at their best levels was really interesting. But also I found it really endearing how all the artists around them would help each other. There's a really beautiful scene with Bob Dylan and Stevie Wonder. That's one of my favorite scenes where Stevie Wonder helps uh, Bob by mimicking his style. And and it's um, a really you know poignant scene that I think really sticks out in my mind. You also got many of these artists to talk to you today, all these years later, to reflect back on that time, Lionel Richie and Bruce Springsteen and Cyndi Lauper. How hard was it to convince them to talk about this? I mean, it was pretty difficult. It was sort of a bit of uh, life imitating art because um, it took Lionel to make these phone calls. And once Lionel was lined up um, to, to help produce this project, everyone started to agree to be part of it. And um, one of the great things that we tried to do in the film was to shoot the interviews at the actual studio where it was recorded. So then, you know, this event happened almost 40 years ago. And so when people walked back into that room, a lot of their memories started flooding back. There's this wonderful memory from Huey Lewis reflecting back on that moment and talking about just how nervous he was to be singing in front of all these other superstars. Take a listen. From that moment on, I was nervous out of my brain. Now, there are tons of moments like this throughout the film. Were there moments from the behind-the-scenes footage you didn't include that you wanted to? I mean, I think, you know, uh, film is a liminal art, so there's definitely, I, I wish we could have included all the stories. Um, we had a scene, like, with more of the recording session um, artists. We had um, just more of the actual recording itself with the stars. Um, but I think for us it was important to kind of find the heart of the story. And uh, I think we did so with this film. And and it, it is, uh, you know, the film has been out for a couple of weeks now on Netflix. And we've just been getting some really great messages of how nostalgic the film is, but also how heartfelt it is. It was almost 40 years ago, as you point out. I just wonder how you reflect on what it took to bring that together, for that moment to happen, and whether you think something like that could ever happen today. I mean, looking back at it now, it, it was such a unique moment, I think, in pop culture, global pop culture, because it really sort of, you know, everyone was focused on this moment. Like, you know, almost every radio station in the world played it all at the same time. I don't know if you can really do that today, but I think it was also the feat of, you know, it was such a surprising moment. It came out of nowhere. I think today there are there's ways to leak things. Social media makes things more apparent. I think it's really unique. But I do hope the film is a way to inspire a generation of artists to realize, like, within their own power, within their own talents, that they can make a difference. The film is The Greatest Night in Pop. It's streaming now on Netflix. The director is Bao Win. Bao, it's always good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amna. Remember, there's much more online, including a story that explores the science behind boil water advisories and how climate change and winter storms might make the problems worse. That's at pbs.org slash newshour. And join us again here tomorrow night as we look at the cleanup efforts in East Palestine, Ohio, where a train derailed causing a toxic spill more than a year ago. And that is the NewsHour for tonight. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Nawaz. On behalf of the entire NewsHour team, thank you for joining us.